Psalm 118 is the final psalm of what are known as the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 and 118. This particular psalm was written particularly for the first celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles after returning from exile, though it was also sung later at Passover and Pentecost. It was this very psalm that was sung during Jesus' entry into Jerusalem before his crucifixion. The psalmist, probably Ezra, writes how God reestablished his nation and triumphed over all the other nations. In doing so, Psalm 118 is a song of adoration to God, in which he is praised for his loyal love. The psalm begins with a call to worship. It continues with a confessional response to God's mercy. And finally, the psalm concludes with praise for God's mercy. And so Psalm 118 is a psalm of the adoration of God. In verses 1 through 4, we'll see the psalmist extolling God. In verses 5 through 18, we'll see the psalmist exalting God. And then finally, in verses 19 to 29, we'll see the psalmist enthroning God. And so if we want a great example of how to worship God or how to give God adoration, Psalm 118 is that example. Let's begin with the extolling of God in verses 1 through 4. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. O oh, let Israel say, His loving kindness is everlasting. O oh, let the house of Aaron say, His ever loving kindness is everlasting. O oh, let those who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness is everlasting. Verse 1 opens with the call, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. The exhortation here tells us what we are to do. We're to give thanks. It tells us why we're to do it. For the Lord is good. Notice the second clause of the verse of verse 1, which can be rendered, uh, for it is good, or literally giving thanks is good. God is good and giving thanks is good. The focus of our thanksgiving appears in the phrase, his loving kindness or his mercy endures forever. This is the mercy displayed in the salvation that God accomplishes as he fulfills his covenant commitment to his people. His commitment is not fickle. It endures forever. And so to be merciful is the very nature of God. And as we develop this psalm, we're going to see an exposition of God's mercy or covenant faithfulness uh, in the coming verses. In verse 2, the exhortation continues with a call for a response by Israel, by the house of Aaron, which is the priest, and by all those who fear the Lord. This threefold response suggests that this psalm was liturgically employed in public worship. And so you would have had uh, eventually all of the various groups of people, whether it was the Israelites, whether it was the Levites, or whether it was the strangers in their midst, the Gentiles, anyone who feared the Lord was going to say amen, was going to say this is true to the witness of the psalmist. What then are we as the people of God to say? We are to reflect the very final sentence of verse 1 as we make our response, our threefold response. That is, God's mercy endures forever. That's what Israel had to say. That's what the Levites had to say. That's what the Gentiles in their midst need to say. God's mercy endures forever. God will be true to his character. 
God will keep his word. God will follow through on his covenant. And so when all else fails, we can trust God. We can trust him now. We can trust him tomorrow. We can trust him forever. And so in verses 1 through 4, the psalmist is extolling God. Beginning in verse 5 through 18, he now begins exalting God. From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surround me. Yes, they surround me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die, but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Now you ask, where do we see God's mercy? You ask, how can we receive his help? And the psalmist begins his answer by saying, I called on the Lord in my distress. In in my time of need, in my time of distress, that is the time when we will see God's mercy. And we receive that mercy when we pray. When we call on the Lord, he acts. Notice the psalmist says, the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. He's referring to salvation. He's referring to not necessarily to uh, redemptive salvation, but salvation or deliverance from his distress. He says, I've been taken out of a place of constriction and I've been put in a large place, in a place where I'm no longer constricted. Now, God's answer to prayer in verse 5 leads to a renewal of his presence in verse 6. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. See, this fearlessness is a result of God's awesome power. It comes from the security of knowing that God is here. Paul's told Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but the Holy Spirit, a spirit of power, love, and self-control. 2 Timothy 1.7. And so the psalmist asks, what can man do to me? And the answer is nothing. Christians all all worked up. Oh, what are we going to do? What about this? What about that? Listen, Christian, we don't need to fret or worry what man is going to do, has done, or will do because our God is in control. Man can't do anything to you that God doesn't allow man to do to you. And anything man does do to you, God can deliver you from. But you've got to pray. You've got to ask God. He goes on to say that not only will God answer our prayers, He grants us His presence. He'll give us His help. The Lord is for me among those who help me. And when His enemies are defeated, He says, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. The literal rendering of this text is this. I will look in victory on those who hate me. He's going to take the enemy out. 
And with this, we are ready for the conclusion that's repeated twice in verse 8. It is better or it is good to trust in the Lord than to trust or feel secure in man. And we, and we see a series of repetitions here, uh, beginning in verse 8 and, and continuing on, this synthetic parallelism in which the psalmist is using it to emphasize the point. He doesn't want us to miss what he is trying to say. And that is, it's better to trust in the Lord, it's better to find your security in Yahweh than in men or even in leaders of men. See, the people nor their leaders are a substitute for trusting in the living God. When are we going to learn this? When are we going to learn this in the church? When are we going to take our eyes off of famous preachers and TV evangelists and put them on God himself? Now notice the distress in verse 5 has not yet been identified, but we're beginning to see it's about to be identified because he says, I'm surrounded by the nations. But... Verse 10 through 12, he vows that they're going to be destroyed. They're going to push him violently, but God is going to save him. And we see the repetition of the word surrounded four times in verses 10 to 13. That, that, the fact that he is surrounded four times suggests the urgency of this hour. He describes the nations like bees swarming for the sting. Like the fire of a thorn, you know, you, you get, imagine running through a thorn bush and, and uh, the, the pain that would come from that. And that's how he's describing his enemies. He says their sting or the fire from their thorn will be quickly quenched. They'll be cut off. Interesting, the word that the psalmist uses here for cut off is the word for circumcision in the Hebrew tongue. That's, uh, he's cutting off these people from destroying his people. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. I will cut them off. You see, the key to victory is here. In the name of the Lord. It means that we're doing something in Yahweh's authority, in his presence, with his power, represented by his name. Then and only then will we ever be victorious. We cannot oppose our enemies in our own name. We cannot oppose our enemies in the name of the state. You see, if you, if you oppose the enemy in your own name, in your own power, in your own strength, that's presumptuous of you. You think yourself better than you ought to. And if you oppose your enemy in the name of some state or some country, let me tell you something, that's idolatry because you're putting that state or that country above God. There is only one true God who delivers, and that's Yahweh. In verse 3, the enemy nations are personified as one individual. You pushed me violently. Literally thrusting you thrust me so that I was falling. But the attack is thwarted. The Lord helped me in verse 7. God's aid leads to his confession in verse 14. The Lord is my strength. He is my song. Interesting the word song here. He is my psalm. And he has become my salvation or my deliverance. You see, God has the resources, and when God's people respond to him in worship, God acts. You see, there's two things we've seen here. God acts when his people pray, and God acts when his people worship. He intervenes, he delivered his people from the nations surrounding them. And he'll deliver us from our foes, the foes that oppose us, those spiritual foes of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And as a result... Israel, here's Israel, encamped for battle, praising God, 
So that verse 15 continues, the sound of joyful shouting and deliverance is in the tents of the righteous. When your enemies defeat it, the normal natural response is to rejoice. It's to praise God. To celebrate him, to celebrate the defeat of the enemies by the intervention of our warrior king. And then the psalmist confesses in verse 17, I will not die but live. See, the battle is won. He's going to witness what God has done by declaring the works of the Lord. He's prepared to give the glory, the praise to Yahweh for what is happening. He says, the Lord has disciplined me severely. The psalmist has been broken by the distress. He's been humiliated and humbled. And the victory is not his but God. But at the same time, in his humiliation, God has not given him over to death. As Paul puts it, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. 2 Corinthians 4, 8-9. See, in all of this, like the Apostle Paul, like the Psalmist Ezra, we need to learn to rely upon the Lord. God is merciful, and His mercy brings His victorious right hand. His mercy comes to us in the midst of our humiliation and brokenness so that he takes us from being imprisoned, he takes us from being constricted, he takes us from being surrounded and attacked by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he lifts us up and puts us into an open place. He delivers us. But when he does, make sure that the glory goes to him and him alone. Finally, in verses 19 to 29, the psalmist is enthroning God. He's enthroning God. First, again, he extolled God. Then he exalted God. Now he enthrones God. Verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horn of the altar. You are my God, I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. So here comes the army back from battle. And the psalmist cries out, Open up the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I'll praise the Lord. See, what is the destination? The temple. When you get victory over some sin in your life, you get victory over some enemy in your life, your destination needs to be the house of God. It needs to be the presence of God. Now, the gates of righteousness here refers to the temple gates. And as he's going into the gate, he's praising the Lord. And he says it's the gate of the Lord. It's the gate of righteousness. It's the gate through which only the righteous enter. And he says in verse 21, I will praise you. Again, notice the response to what God has done is worship. God brings life out of death. Again, David could, or excuse me, Ezra records here that, hey, we could have died, but God allowed us to live. 
And then he continues in verse 22 with the statement, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, in the context, they're entering into the temple, they see the great stones of the temple, and the picture is apropos. They're seeing, and, and you know, they're all familiar with how a building is built, that stones had to be hewn, and as they were hewn, they were set in place. But if there was something wrong with the stone upon inspection, it was disallowed. It was taken out. It was rejected. But yet the psalmist here says the stone which the builders rejected, that stone's actually become the chief cornerstone of the temple. Now in the immediate context, the rejected stone is the psalmist and the Israelites who had been in battle. And God used them just as the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. How is this small group of people, this small band of people, possibly going to defeat a mighty enemy? I mean, think about it in the context of the book of Esther. Haman was in the possession of power. Haman had the rules and the laws written for his advantage. He was in the position of wiping out all of the Israelites and that small band of Israelites through one woman who prayed to God and who worshipped God, intervened on their behalf. God used the foolish thing of the world to confound the wise. And he does it again here. Israel was the stone rejected by the nations. But yet God makes them the chief cornerstone. At the same time, this verse is messianic. It's not just fulfilled in the history of Israel, but it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the rejected stone who is now the chief cornerstone. He holds up the whole temple of God, the living temple, which is built upon Jesus himself. See, the stone that man has rejected, that's God's work. This is the Lord's doing. It's extraordinary. It's marvelous in our eyes. See, a mighty act such as this, that is, the rejection by people of the Savior, and that same Savior, that same Redeemer, still turn around and redeem humanity. That's the work of God, and that work needs to evoke our worship. He goes on to say, this, which is the day of deliverance, is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. When you and I see God intervene, when we see God deliver us out of bondage or other people out of bondage, when we see people, God rescue people out of death, with spiritual death in particular, the response of our heart ought to be praise and joy. And our worship then, when it's actually driven by who God is and what he has done, our worship will become real and it will be a response to seeing God deliver from our enemies. Now notice the psalmist as he's worshiping engages in intercession, blessing, sacrifice, and vows his praise to God. Verse 25 to 29. He asked, number one, Yahweh for salvation and prosperity. Save now I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send me prosperity. See, this request expressed his heart of faith. God has delivered his people from his enemy. Now, Lord, you've delivered me. Please bless me. He was asking for blessing. You know, when God redeemed Israel out of Egypt, he didn't del deliver them out of Egypt to live them in, leave them in the wilderness, but to bring them to the promised land. And when we pray for people to be delivered from sin's power, we must also be pray praying to God that he might fill them with God's Spirit. Otherwise, you've got a spiritual vacuum. 
And I'll tell you, what will fill that vacuum will be worse than what it was in the first place. Then in second, in verse 26, the psalmist gives a blessing to those who come in the name of the Lord. Again, coming in the name of the Lord is to come in His authority and with His power. The New Testament interprets this verse as messianic. It's Jesus who came to us in God's name. It's Jesus who rolls back the kingdom of darkness. And as that spiritual delivery comes, we need to respond by saying, we have blessed you from the house of the Lord. You see, when we gather together, the attention isn't to be on us, it's to be on Him. The, the, the praise isn't supposed to be upon us. We're not patting ourselves on the back. Hey, look, we all got together today. No, we got together today because we wanted to extol Him. We wanted to enthrone Him as the Lord of our hearts, the King of our hearts. Third, look at the direction given concerning the sacrifice in verse 27. Sacrifice begins with the confession that God is the Lord and He has given us light. Now we're supposed to also be making sacrifices, certainly not animal sacrifices, but we're supposed to be, our bodies are to be a living sacrifice. We're supposed to be making sacrifices with our lips, Hebrews 13 tells us, the lips of praise. So we have the, 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 the sacrifice of life and the sacrifice of lip, Romans 12, Hebrews 13. But notice here that any sacrifice with your life or your lips has to begin with the acknowledgement that Christ is the Lord and it's He is the one who has given us the light. And then it says to bind the sacrifice with the cords to the horns of the altar. You know, each of the four corners of the altar had a horn and each of those horns that projected off of the altar represented God's power. The idea of binding a sacrifice to them is unique here in the Old Testament. But it was literally, you know, it was giving it over to God's authority. When you give a sacrifice, when you lay your life down as a sacrifice, you're saying to God, you have the authority and power over my life. Do with my life as you will. And then, notice he now, number four, vows his praise to God. He confesses, you are my God, verse 28, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Or extol you. It, uh, worship consummates in praise. He delivers us so that we can worship Him. He delivers us so we can honor Him. He delivers us so we can delight in Him. And because He's our mighty Lord, He's our mighty King, we're to submit to Him, and Him alone should receive our glory. And now the psalm concludes just the way it began. We're to call upon, uh, we're called to give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because He's good. His goodness is demonstrated in His mercy, and that mercy endures forever. We see God's mercy when He answers us in our distress. We see God's mercy in granting us His presence. We see God's mercy in destroying our enemies. We see God's mercy in helping us. We see God's mercy in giving us salvation. And that's why we know that God is good. And so with the psalmist, let us give adoration to God. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for this Psalm of 118 that we've studied here in a few moments together. That, Father, we would give you the adoration that you deserve, the worship that you deserve. That, Father, we would extol you. Lord, we might uh, not only extol you, but enthrone you. And that, Lord, not only enthrone you, but that, Father, we might also exalt you. Lord, we need to submit to you. 
We need to we need to have the right attitude in our relationship. We're not here to be your good buddy. We're not here just to simply be your pal, somebody we hang out with. Lord, you've saved us, and in doing so, we are to submit to you as our Lord and King. Yes, you're our friend. Yes, you're our Heavenly Father. Yes, we're espoused as the bride to your Son. But Lord, we must not lose sight. Don't allow us to lose sight of the fact that first and foremost, you are our King. And it's you who deserves all the glory, all the honor, all the praise, because you are good. You are merciful, Father. I thank you for showing us mercy throughout our lives. Lord, as we continue to see your mercy in our midst, may we continue to lift you up above all other and all else, we pray in your Son's name. Amen.